Welcome to the Ultimate Tournament of Everything, a bracket-style show where we compare everything that ever was against everything that could ever be using Wikipedia and the Internet. That's right, and we do so by taking every one of those things of the infinite and rolling them out into flattened oblong ovals. We then fluff them up, make two that are inverse to one another, stick them inside of our shoes, and take a walk. Which one will give us the proper spring support and uh, arch comfort that will make us have the ideal stride and step? Well, that will be the one moving on to the next round of... The if only that's what we were doing, Dr. Schultz would probably sue us because we would have a couple Are You Gelling? I'm Gelling commercials. Well, don't be gelling until you've walked a mile in our shoes, but we're going to take this mile two items at a time. Why don't we do so starting right now in round one? Round one. In round one, we have Martin Truns against Sir John Johnstone, the sixth baronet. Indeed, and that baronet sounds like a musical instrument, but indeed was a British army officer facing off against Martin Truntz, who was a former ski jumper. Let's see which one of these is going to fly high into the next round. Martin Truns, born May 2nd, 1970, is a Swiss former ski jumper who competed from 1990 to 1996. At the Winter Olympics, he finished 8th in the Team Large Hill at Albertville in 1992 and 40th in the Individual Large Hill at Lillehammer in 1994. 40th? How many people do they let compete in these events? That's a long ways down the charts there. Uh, What kind of medal do you get for 40th place? Lead. You get a lead medal. <laughs> well, Trunce's best finish was at the FIS Nordic World Ski Championships, where he placed sixth in the team Large Hill, which I like to call a mountain, at Val de Fiem in 1991, and 13th in the individual Normal Hill, which is a slightly smaller mountain, at Thunder Bay, Ontario in 1995. His best finish at the Ski Flying World Championships was sixth at Harakov in 1992, which was tied for his best individual career. Now, and because it was tied, he also finished sixth one more time at the Norma Hill event at Fallen that same year. So he peaked at the bottom of that mountain in 1992. Indeed, you don't want to be falling when you're jumping on skis. That being said, let's jump over to our other competitor, uh, who may or may not have placed well on a mountain, Mr. Sir John Johnstone. Great name there. The sixth baronet way down in the orchestra. I don't know what a baronet is, but hopefully they will tell us. Now, Sir John Johnstone was the son of George Johnstone, who died in 1787, and his wife, Charlotte D. His mother married again in 1970 to Charles Edmund Nugent of, of course, the Ted Nugent family. Ah, the Nuges. Johnstone was brought up in the expectation of inheriting from his paternal uncle, the wealthy Sir William Pultenini, the fifth baronet, who was a property developer and died in 1805, uh, who had changed his surname from Johnstone. He left only one child, Laura Pulteney, uh, the first Countess of Bath, who died in 1808. 
In consequence of his uncle's death, John Stone became sixth baronet and inherited a Scottish estate in Dumfrieshire. Ah, uh, so a baronet is like a landowner. It's like a, a king that's not quite a king or a baron that's not quite a baron, hence the baronet. Now, Johnstone had joined the Cold Steam Guards in 1800 with the rank of ensign and fallen into bad company. Through the Duke of Cumberland, he was given a staff position with General Richard Vice, but continued to run up heavy debts and make unwise associations. Yes, and then in 1806, Johnstone left the army, aiming to enter politics. So, yes, excellent uh, here. Someone who's involved in the government, makes questionable decisions, definitely should run for office. He was, however, defeated for Dumfrieshire in 1806 general election. His opponent, William Johnstone Hope, possible relation there, it's not included, had been selected and won the seat in 1804 for the Tories, when William Pulteney had, it was rumored, been trying to bring in Robert Coltar Ferguson, who was a barrister who had been imprisoned after an affray at the 1799 treason trial. Now, there was much interest in the 1806 contest. Patrick Miller, who had 10 years before broken with his patron William Douglas, the fourth Duke of Queensbury, and joined the Whig Club contacted Charles James Fox about it. Now, Sir John Heron Maxwell, a Tory, passed over in 1804, might have run and split the vote. Johnson had backing from Lord Grenville, James Maitland, the 8th Earl of Lauderdale in Florida, and William Adam of Blair Adam. It was enough to make a contest of it, but no more. Johnstone losing by 26 votes to 34, he undertook to stand again and had the chance in the 1807 general election, but did not on that occasion. Yeah, and going on, this article just kind of continues with all of these relations, relationships, family members, and, uh, you know, basically power grabs here. This is a bunch of rich, wealthy people who were trying to be richer and wealthier and you know, succeeding or failing at those efforts. Uh, it's, it's pretty much just the interactions of this kind of class of people here. Um, if you want to see more of this, you can probably read like The Great Gatsby or watch any of those period piece television shows. Um, frankly, they didn't get much done. People lived, people died. Their surviving family members uh, continued on and uh, did much of the same, you know, rich people being rich people. Yeah, we're just jealous, but that's okay, because we get to read about them and make fun of them, and what are they going to do, continue to be rich and in power? Well, good for them. Yeah, and, you know, what kind of power did they really have here? Doesn't seem like a whole lot. Um, you know, none of them are still around today. Got a lot of daughters, a lot of nieces, a lot of... Uh, titles and things like that but i don't see any medals including but not limited to a lead medal as our other competitor mr martin truntz received for getting 40th <laughs> place at the olympics so i think i'm leaning towards our high-flying swiss former ski jumper as my selection move on to the next round no i think i can agree with that now even though he was 40th out of probably only 40 <laughs> <laughs> he he got up on top of that mountain just so he could go back down it, just so he could get in a ski lift to go back up it again. And that is what we call the circle of life. The ultimate turn everything. 
Yeah, let this be a lesson to us all. If you're not going to be successful in a large hill, find yourself a smaller hill and <laughs> you might be more successful. Speaking of more successful, let's move on to the next round, hoping we're more successful there in round two. It's time for round two. In round two, we have Harry Hansen, the author, against the 2006 2016-2017 CD, Miranda's Season. Oh, beautiful. We have an author, an American journalist, editor, literary critic, and historian facing off against a football team that played in a particular year, the game of soccer. Now, Harry Hansen was born December 26th, the day right after Christmas. He's a gift to us all, 1884, and passed away January 3rd, 1977. He was an American journalist, editor, literary critic, and historian, and he's notable as one of the many authors who wrote for the Random House landmark series of children's history during the 1950s and 60s, and he also edited the World Book from 1950 to 1965. Now, the World Book was those sets of encyclopedias that you may have had attempted to be sold to you door-to-door by some sort of random salesman who had a lot of random information knowledge, Um, but perhaps you also may have seen them in your schools and or libraries. This man is no doubt included in those copies today. Hansen was born in Davenport, Iowa, attending high school in that same city. After graduation, he joined the Davenport Republican newspaper, serving as both the Telegraph editor and a staff writer how does one edit a telegraph beep 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 no 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 beep 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 i don't even know how that works how does one write a staff these are the questions (laughs) that we're here to answer he attended the university of chicago majoring in english and acquired a PhD in 1909. After graduation, he joined the Chicago Daily News as a staff reporter, and upon the outbreak of the First World War, he became the Daily News' overseas war correspondent in Europe. Well, that is, of course, where the war was fought. Now, when the United States entered the war, Hansen was promoted to foreign editor. And by 1920, he had risen to the position of literary editor, and he remained in that position until leaving the Daily News in 1926 to join the New York World as their first reader, which this is in quotes. I don't think he's the first one to read it. I think it means something else. I think it's probably a good position. He may have been the very first subscriber, um, but that, again, is not included in this article. Hansen specialized more in literary affairs than in foreign affairs. Um, maybe he wasn't married, because you got to watch out for that. In... Uh his time at the world he made the book review column into a daily feature and remained as a book editor even after the world was sold to the new york telegram in 1931 uh being one of the very few employees to remain with the paper he also contributed literary criticism to other newspapers including the chicago tribune harper's magazines and red book now he took commentary columns and his were syndicated in magazines all over the country And he also hosted radio programs both in Chicago and New York. In addition, he served as the editor of the O. Henry Prize Stories from 1933 until 1940. He wrote several nonfiction books, including The Adventures of the Fourteen Points, about the Versailles Peace Conference that ended World War I in 1919, and his only novel, Your Life Lies Before You, in 1935. During and following the Second World War, he continued his historical writing, 
and he wrote one of the Ferrer and Reinhardt's classic Rivers of America series on the Chicago River in 1942, and also penned one of Random House's equally famous landmark series, Juvenile Historical Volumes, Old Ironsides, The Fighting Constitution of, or in 1955. So in addition to all of this, Hansen also served as editor of The World Book from 1950 until 1965. During the 60s and 70s, he supervised revisions of several volumes of American guide series of state guidebooks, including volumes on Louisiana, California, and Illinois, among others. He also published an annual anthology of first prize winners of the O. Henry Memorial Awards, and in 1960 published a complete anthology of the first prize stories spanning the years from 1919 to 1960. That is quite the anthology, but that is not what he was most proud of. He was married to Ruth McLernan in 1914, and the couple had two daughters, Ruth, Eleanor, and Marion. Harry Hansen suffered a heart attack and died at the age of 92, and his papers and correspondence are preserved in the Newbury Library in Chicago, Illinois. Excellent. This was a sharp-looking guy, too. We've got a picture here. Uh, kind of looks like Walt Disney, uh, without facial hair, I would say, but a very nice bow tie. Um, sharp-looking guy, lots of books in the background. Very well-educated, as I'm sure were many of the members of the team that made up the 2016-2017 C.D. Miranda season. The Spanish football team based in Miranda El Ebero from the province of Burgos. Now, during the 2016-17 campaign, they competed in the Segunda Division and the Copa del Rey, and they were not good. They were not good at all. Their overall record, 9-14 and 19, which is yeah. not good. Their goal differential, negative 26, 41 total points. They were a little better at home than they were away, but not by much. Generally, when they color code the score sheet and red is bad, and there's a lot of red here, they were not good. Yeah, you're not going to want to see a lot of subsequent red L's here. Now, they started their season... Uh, middling couple of draws a win a draw a win a draw a win and a couple of draws and then it all went downhill five straight losses a draw and a loss they finally pulled it all together with a win in game 17 lost 18 won again in 19 had hope in their eyes and after that they would only win three more matches um Looks like maybe four or five, but it's a long season and it did not end well. Uh, their Copa Segunda dreams did not end well, and they would have rather have been, I'm sure, in the Copa Cabana, where they would not be awarded uh, a slot because they weren't the winners. Well, that's okay. They went into the world like most of us did at a draw, but went out on top. Winners. They won their very last game 0-2, and that's all that matters because everyone remembers who cares how many games you lose? As long as you win the last one, then you're the champion forever. That's not how anything works uh, at all. And that's exactly how this show works, actually. <laughs> Who cares what else you did? If you win this round, you are the winner. Yes, this round. But are you saying that this team is going to win over uh, this man, Harry Hansen, with the wonderfully alliterative name? I am not, because they are worse than he is. He is fantastic, and they are <laughs> awful. 
So then we have therefore ruined their legacy. They <laughs> won their last game. We're feeling high and mighty. And here in this new competition they have entered, we have totally destroyed that and uh, defunct all of the work that they put in, basically just in that last week of the season. 2016-17, Cedar Miranda season, you are the loser. And Harry Hansen, you are moving <laughs> on to the next round. The ultimate tournament of everything. They're just not good. The breaks. Yeah. Yeah. What are you going to do? You know, and if you want to read about it, I'm sure you can read about it in the world book. But if you want to hear about it, hey, you just did. And if you want to hear about something more, well, let's get to it in round three. Three. It's time for round three. In round three, we have Braun Radom against the Women's Development Bank. All right, a professional football club from Poland facing off against the Women's Development Bank. Uh, we're going to have to learn about what this is, but I'm pretty sure it looks like it was a, oh, it was a group set up to remedy the political, economic, and social disadvantages faced by women. They're going to be a heavy hitter in this round, I can tell you right now. Let's dig into this tasty round. Now, the Brown Rightum, the professional football club based in Rightum, Brown Rightum, of course, football, we mean soccer in this case. Now, this dates all the way back to 1926 when the workers of football club, oh, I've never seen that letter before in my life, Tuchnik formed the club of cyclists and motorcyclists, okay, uh, whose main sponsor of the club was a manufacturer of firearms. Now, in the course of time, other departments were added and the organization changed its name to the sports club Braun. With financial support of the Lushnik plant, Braun emerged as the largest sports organization in the city of Radom, and by the early 1930s, Braun had such departments as archery, tennis, boxing, volleyball, cycling, and football, and construction of a new stadium and swimming pool was initiated, and a cycling track was built. Yeah, this is very interesting. The Polish word bron means weapons in this English language, uh, as FB... Kusnik? That's definitely, it's like an L with a slash through it. The main sponsor of the club, they're a manufacturer of firearms. Um, so that might explain why archery was involved in there. Uh, the guns, however, were left aside. The organization continued to prosper after World War II. Um, perhaps their firearms came in handy during that event. Uh, in the 1960 Olympic Games in Rome, bronze own Kashmir Pazidor won gold medal in lightweight boxing, and bronze cyclist Andrzej Mikolak qualified to the 1980 Olympic Games. Also, its tennis players were recognized nationwide. Now, in the late 70s and early 80s, the football team played in the second tier of Polish football. Among the most famous players who began their careers there were Kazmierz Przybysz, Thomas Dzbinski, which took us for Poland, apparently, and Rafał Sadatsky. In 1996, several departments became independent, and the football team was renamed into Redham Football Club. So, hey, let me get this straight. This football team traces its history back to a motorcycle gang sponsored by a firearms manufacturer that also played tennis. Yeah, um, as all motorcycle gangs have, you know, it's, it's a tale as old as time, Rob. Yes, a tale as old as time. True tale as, as it old can as be. motorcycles. <laughs> Anyways, well, uh, 
Yeah, so they've got a cool little emblem here. It looks like three flags, red, white, and blue. One of them says Bron. One of them doesn't say anything at all. And the other one has the letters RKS on them. Um, you would kind of think that it'd be a little tougher looking considering they come from a firearms manufacturer. But I like that they're not going for the bravado. Uh, they're not going for the you know, hyper-masculine type of imagery. Speaking of, let's get over to our other competitor, the Women's Development Bank. Now, if ever this was a Beauty and the Beast metaphor, here it is. This one would be the Beauty. The other one, the Firearms Manufacturer Motorcycle Club Tennis Association, would be the Beast. The Women's Development Bank was established in Venezuela in 2001 to remedy the political, economic, and social disadvantages faced by women. The bank offers both financial and non-financial services to women, and the first president of this bank was Nora Castaneda. This bank provides small, low-interest loans, known as microcredit loans, ranging from 500,000 to 1 million bolivares. That's uh, 500 to 1,000 bolivares fuertes, or $260 to $520 per woman, uh, for the establishment of business ventures. Loans are not granted to individuals, but rather to groups of 5 to 10 women. In this manner, the bank is ideologically aligned with President Hugo Chavez by promoting community solidarity over individualism which is associated with capitalism not usually associated with hugo chavez not usually also associated with a bank the bank has provided over forty thousand of these such loans and is also offers financial advice to women and serves as a consultant in the formation and development of business projects now we did mention that they also provide non-financial services and i know you're wondering what exactly those could be the Women's Development Bank well, also offers a number of them, <laughs> such as administrative training, workshop space, uh, self-esteem. It just—I don't even think it says training for self-esteem. It just says self-esteem is its own category. Like you walk into the bank and they're like, "Hey, you know what? Good job," and then you leave. That's all they offer. They also offer, though, so uh, you know, programs and uh, services related to family planning and health. These workshops usually encourage dialogue within the community and stimulate a greater involvement of women in politics. The bank is distinct from other banks in that it doesn't have branch offices. Rather, it consists of a network of supporters who visit 149 impoverished and overpopulated areas on a weekly basis and offer the bank's services to women who otherwise would not have access to banking services. And bank members also make individual house calls. So that's interesting. When you go to the bank and you steal the pen, because you're at the bank, that's one thing. When the bank comes to you, do they take your pen? I think they bring you a pen and they just leave it somewhere in your house. Okay. So it's like Or fun. casa. Uh, yes, it is in Venezuela, of course. Now, the bank attempts to promote self-sufficiency which is interesting because they're like, we want you to be self-sufficient, but we're going to go to you because we don't expect you to go to us. That's fine. I don't, it's their, it's their business. Now, by minimizing the requirements to receive a loan, they promote self-sufficiency. The bank offers direction to encourage the success of these projects, but does not dictate how their businesses should be run. This presents a challenge to many marginalized women who are illiterate. In instances where women are illiterate or otherwise have difficulty in overseeing a business venture, a female family member or friend will oversee the project until that woman becomes literate. The bank also directs women to Mission Robinson, a literacy campaign launched by Chavez's government. 
So this is, I think, pretty great, though. So even if, you know, the the women that they're offering these opportunities to are going to struggle, they give them up, you know, they put them underneath and uh, in association with other women uh, to make sure that uh, this is going to be successful. Um, I think it's just great. Yeah, it is great. It's so great that I think our motorcycle tennis football firearms club has no chance. Yeah, um, kind of a sausage fest over there and a whole bunch of guns, a whole bunch of sausage. That's going to give you a heart attack in the long run. And looks like the uh, Women's Development Bank is just going to give you opportunity and uh, prosperity in the end. So I think that we're both in accord. Moving the Women's Development Bank on to, to, to the next round of the Ultimate Tournament Everything. That's not even particularly close. No, although those are relatively low amounts for um, business loans. I think they could step that up a little bit. Yeah, probably. But also, it it sounds like that might be enough for them. Because there was like a million in their currency. Well, I maybe that's not enough. You know, that's never enough. You always got to do one more. Speaking of one more... Why don't we do one more? Moving on to the next round, round four. Ah, my round four is ready. In round four, we're going to talk about a low angle shot and avapritinib. Absolutely. I can't wait to hear you say that several times. We're talking about a shot from a camera angle positioned low on a vertical axis facing off against a medication used for the treatment of systemic mastocytosis. Ooh, very interesting. Um, Let's see which one of these is going to get the perfect angle for victory. Now, in cinematography, a low-angle shot is a camera angle positioned on a low vertical axis anywhere from below the eye line and looking up. Sometimes it's even directly below the subject's feet. Psychologically, the effect of a low-angle shot is what makes the subject look strong and powerful. Now, if you've ever been to Canada and you've wondered, you know what? I think Canada needs to be scary and imposing. Well, they have a picture of a Mountie here. Royal Canadian Mounted Police Officer photographed from a low angle. Looks more imposing. And I hate to break it to you, Canada. No, he doesn't. He still doesn't. Well, basically, if you want to look at Canada from America, you've got yourself a low angle shot. (laughs) So just go to the border, take a look. And if you're intimidated, that's what we're talking about right here. Now, there are several famous examples uh, listed, including, but not limited to, uh, from Citizen Kane, directed by the famous Orson Welles. There are many examples in this movie, uh, such as a scene where Kane fires Leland. In fact, the scene where Leland confronts Kane after his defeat in the election is entirely shot from this low-angle view. Um, basically, it's from the perspective of, if you are a real real uh short individual um you know this is how everything's gonna look uh and that's got to be intimidating yeah lay on the ground and look up and that is exactly what it looks like and would you believe it godzilla almost all the shots of a godzilla are from a low angle probably because he's 50 feet tall 
uh, in Psycho, the house where Norman Bates lives is usually shot from a low angle. Um, also, you know, it was put on the hill in Star Wars. Darth Vader is often shot at a low angle. For example, the first time we see his character walking down the hallway and... Um, in Saturday Night Fever, in the famous opening sequence, there are several shots from a low angle to emphasize Tony Monero's delusions that he is untouchable. Well, because you can tell by the way he moves his <laughs> walk, he's untouchable. He's untouchable. Absolutely. He's untouchable, except if he has the mastocystis, these tumors that are treated by this drug, then he's definitely not untouchable. Okay, Mike, why don't you give this other competitor with all the eyes in it a shot at pronunciation oh you mean avapritinib yeah that's that's close enough we're just going to call it the drug <laughs> so this is used for the treatment a of avapritinib yeah everybody's heard of that they would definitely if they were going to sell it on tv have to come up with a different word for it Avapritinib is uh, basically a medication used for the treatment of advanced systemic mastocytosis and for the treatment of tumors due to one specific rare mutation. It is specifically intended for adults with unresectable or metastatic gastrointestinal stromal tumor or gist, if you get my gist, that harbor a platelet-derived growth factor receptor alpha, PDGFRA, exon 18 mutation. Avapritinib is a kinase inhibitor. Common side effects include swelling, nausea, fatigue, asthenia, which is abnormal physical weakness, weakness or lack of energy, cognitive impairment, vomiting, decreased appetite, diarrhea, hair color changes, increased lacrimation, abdominal pain, constipation, rash, and dizziness, or I think we should probably do it in TV commercial drug seller voice, shouldn't we? Come on, side effects of going down. Avapritinib is indicated for the treatment of adults with these conditions we talked conditions we talked about. It was approved in January of 2020 and was granted Fast Track Designation, Breakthrough Therapy Designation, and Orphan Drug Designation, which is apparently just drugs they give to orphans, and the FDA granted approval of this to Blueprint Medicines Corporation. Yeah, and they granted that approval based on evidence from one clinical trial of 204 subjects with GIST. Uh, the trial was conducted at 17 sites in the United States, Europe, and Asia. It showed a medium PFS of 4.2 months compared to 5.6 months for regofenib. Uh, the difference in medium PFS between avapritinib and regofenib groups was not statistically significant. Uh, the overall response rate was 17% for the avapritinib group and 7% for the regorafenib group. Uh, the Voyager trial evaluated the efficiency, efficacy uh, and safety of avapritinib uh, versus regorafenib uh, in patients with third or fourth line gist. Uh, basically, it was mildly better than the previous treatment that they had been using for this condition. Hey, we could talk about it more, but it's a loser, and we know it's a loser. The low-angle shot is the winner. We could mispronounce this word over and over again for an audio-only podcast, but instead, <laughs> we should move on.
Agreed. You are intimidating. And moving on to the next round. Low angle shot. Congratulations. The ultimate tournament of everything. It's kind of the opposite of like what you want to do with a selfie. Like with a selfie, you want to make yourself look like nice and approachable. So you hold your camera up way high. But with this low angle shot, you hold it down low so that you look imposing and intimidating. Yeah, you ever hold a selfie camera a little too low and you're like, oh my gosh, who has nine chins? And it's you! It is you. Absolutely it is. Five. Them's fighting words. And fight we will. The Battle of Yalu River against Timothy Vogel. Ah, two big old fighters here. A battle uh, in the it was the first battle of the Russo-Japanese War, facing off against an individual who knew how to fight himself, a New, Eng- New Zealand cricketer. Um, ooh, yes, this is going to be a sticky wicket. Let's dive in. The Battle of the Yalu River lasted from April 30th to May 1st, 1904, which if I'm counting, that's just those two days, isn't it? It's just <laughs> those. It's those two days. It was the first major land battle during the Russo-Japanese War. It was fought near Weiju, modern village of Sinuijui in North Korea, on the lower reaches of the Yalu River, and on the border between Korea and China, also known as the Yalu River Crossing Operation. Why was the Russo-Japanese War being fought in North Korea? Yeah, I have no idea, but we're going to find out. The Imperial Russian Army commander in the Far East, General Alexei Kuropatkin, followed a strategy of stalling while waiting for enough reinforcements to come up the front via the incomplete single-track Trans-Siberian Railway to make the offensive. He estimated that it would take at least six months to build his forces up to suitable levels in the vice- viceroy of the Russian Far East. Yevgeny Leskiev had given General Kurpotkin strict orders not to hinder the Japanese northward progress through Korea but to hold the line of the Yalu River to prevent the Japanese from crossing into Manchuria. Yes, very interesting. Even in 1904, the Russian strategy was based around Stalin. Now, in (laughs) April of 1904, uh, Kuropatnik dispatched the Eastern Detachment under the command of Lieutenant General Mikhail Zakhulik with 1,600 infantry, 5,000 cavalry, and some 62 artillery pieces to fight a static delaying action on the north bank of the river. However, Zasulich's force was spread out piecemeal over a 170-mile front, whereas the Imperial Japanese Army could concentrate its efforts on any single point of its choosing. General Zasulich did not hold the Japanese in very high regard. Most of the Russian forces were deployed near Weiju, blocking the main road from Korea to Manchuria. Small detachments guarded the bank up and down the river. Now here's the question. Who is going to win? There's a little bit of foreshadowing there, perhaps. So the main battle, the Japanese main attack, began in the early morning hours of April 27th, which is different than April 30th when I hear it started. (laughs) Now, the balance of the 12th Division had crossed the river and was advancing in three columns. While the Japanese 12th Division advanced on the right, the Guards Division was moving into position in the center, and by 4 a.m., the artillery of the Guards Division was within range of the exposed Russian lines. The Japanese 1st Army continued this three-pronged advance and was across the Yalu by midnight April 29th with very little opposition. 
limited visibility masked their movements, and when the fog finally lifted, the Japanese artillery opened up on the Russian formations. Yeah, so let's jump right to the uh, crux of it here. The Battle of the Yalu River ended in victory for Japan. The combat had cost the Japanese 1,036 dead and wounded out of the total First Army strength of 42,500. The Russian Eastern Detachment, however, suffered some 20 or 2,700 casualties overall, including about 500 killed, 1,000 wounded, 600 imprisoned, and the loss of 21 of 24 field guns. The Battle of the Yalu River was the first major land campaign of the Russo-Japanese War, and the defeat of the Russian Eastern Detachment removed the perception that the Japanese would be an easy enemy, that their war would be short, and that Russia would be the overwhelming victor. Well, of course, this started the saying everyone knows, when Russia loses, it's a good day. And we've had a lot of those good days, and yet we're still having bad days as Russia tries to reverse that trend. Um, but they haven't really been that successful. They're still not being that successful, but they're still being kind of buttheads about it. Yeah, buttheads is the nice censored Apple podcast radio term. Let's move on <laughs> to Timothy Vogel. Timothy Grant Vogel, born July 11th, 1960, former New Zealand cricketer played four first-class and three list-A cricket matches for Wellington in the 80s, played for Hutt Valley in the Hawk Cup, and was born in Upper Hutt. Mike, why don't you read the rest of the article? Will do, and done, because that's all the article that we have there. Uh, Upper Hutt, that's definitely got to be one of the better huts available. It is a city in Wellington region of New Zealand, and one of the four cities that constitute the Wellington metropolitan area area um, perhaps there's a lower in two sides but that's not included here nor is anything else and so that being said i'm sure he's a great cricketer but i gotta lean towards uh russia getting their butts kicked here in the battle of the yalu river the why dwell on it? I said when Russia loses, it's a good day. Let's hear it again. The if they thought they could just roll in there, go through the river, just stomp on people that they didn't even understand. You know what? You can't do that. Don't go into places that you don't belong doing things that you shouldn't do. Speaking of, let's go into some place that we do belong doing stuff that we should do in round six. Making a turn around Ross Kirby. Comedy comes around the last second. There you have it. There is your winner. Round six. In round six, we have Dahan against Julidochromis. Ah, uh, we have a concatenated form of a Dutch surname facing off against a genus of chicklids, and we're all big fans of chicklids here. Uh, let's see which one of these is going to be successful in this short articled round of numero six. Now, this Dutch surname is going to list in this article only American people. Alyssa DeHaan, the American basketball and volleyball player. Dane DeHaan, the American actor. Corey DeHaan, the American baseball outfielder. And M.R. DeHaan, the American Bible teacher. 
Now, I like this name, though. It's capital D, lowercase e, capital H, double A-N. And that's just kind of sweet. Now, we do have some variances here uh, within the article itself. Ah, no, I see a concatenated. I wonder what that word means. I think we should look it up because the surname here has no space between D and Han. Um and the original version of Dutch has a space between. And I can see here, looking this up, concatenated actually means uh, link things together in a form or series. So we've taken these two names, probably day, likely meaning of. Oh, look at this. It's a Dutch family name meaning the rooster. Yeah. That's interesting. Hey, I bet you didn't know that before you started this podcast. So look at that. That is your fact of the day. We should almost have like a, a chime song. Fact of the day. There you go. Now let's talk about this. <laughs> let's talk about this fish. Julidochromus, the genus of cichlid in the subfamily Pseudocrenelebrinae. Okay, commonly called Julies, and they're endemic to Lake Tanganyika in eastern Africa. This genus includes six formerly described species, some with a number of local variants of uncertain taxonomic status, and further taxonomic work is required to determine how many species exist. They do closely relate Chalinochromus with two more species uh, is sometimes included here, and this may be correct. Um, that's an interesting statement. Hybridization makes attempts to determine relationships with molecular phylogenetic methods difficult. Uh, these ray-finned fish, okay, hey, there's a fact, are smallish to mid-sized and have a yellowish background color with black lengthwise stripes or a checkerboard pattern. Now these fish are they're they're cool fish. That's uh, if you have a there's a nice picture here. It looks like a zebra with horizontal stripes, but it is a fish instead with a tiny yellow fin. It would make a great Disney character. Yeah, actually, we have a few different pictures that are available uh, because we're talking about a genus. Okay, so there's a number of them involved in this family here. Uh, some of them have more stripes. Some of them have thicker, thinner stripes. We do have most of them with horizontal stripes, though some have vertical stripes as well, including the Judochromus malariae. Yeah, that's that's a fish. Now, this species is... A secretive biparental substrate spawners relating to retreating to caves or rock crevices. Pairs are largely monogamous. However, the largest male may maintain harems and the largest females may mate with multiple males at multiple nesting sites. This has been recorded in both the wild and the aquarium. If a pair bond is broken, the larger fish will drive the smaller fish out of the territory, sometimes killing him in the process, much like a human divorce. In some species in this genus, females are substantially larger than the males, and a female will often dominate a male larger than herself. These are some freaky uh, fan-fanned fish there. A pair of breeding fish must guard their nests from other cichlids trying to eat their offspring. Common intruders in, in the lake include Trophius, Semochromus, and Petrochromus. There you go. Look at that. More fish. More sometimes monogamous, always territorial, tiny, very cool-looking fish. 
But which yep. fish is the best fish? The Dutch fish named Han <laughs> or this cichlid? Well, the Dutch fish is actually a rooster, uh, which would not serve themselves very well underwater. I've never known a rooster to be a high, uh, skill, highly skilled swimmer. However, these fish definitely have that, you know, on lock. Well, don't forget about the rooster fish. That is from an earlier episode. We did learn mm. about the rooster fish. The rooster fish, the Guy Fieri of fishes. Indeed. Uh, if you want to have a flavor town underwater, a subaquatic, um, just absolute flavor explosion with a spiky four area, uh, that's the one you want to look for. But I think in this round, I'm kind of leaning towards this genius genus of cichlids, the family Julie Dochromis. Well, you're going to get no argument from me. I think we have to give it to the tiny little fish. The ultimate Swimming victorious into the next round, Julie Dochromis. Uh, and actually, now that we've said it a few times, it kind of rolls off the tongue pretty well. Julie Dochromis. Well, it's, it's beautiful. That's why they call it Julie's, apparently. It makes more sense now. Indeed. Um, Let's see if everything's going to make sense in the next round. Round to seven. Round seven. Round seven. Round seven. In round seven, we have Anderson County Schools in Kentucky against EMDGP49, the four-axle diesel locomotive. Ooh, yes. Two almost unstoppable entities here. We've got a school district from Kentucky known for its education versus a four-axle diesel locomotive built by GM. Hey, come on. Don't make fun of Kentucky. It's not their I fault. I said they were known for their education. <laughs> You're right. That was not facetious at all. Anderson County Schools, operated by the school district for Anderson County, Kentucky, governed by the Anderson County Board of Education, Current superintendent is Sheila Mitchell, and as of 2020, the district enrolled 3,555 students across seven schools with 220 full-time teachers. That's a pretty good ratio there. Not too bad. They've got a high school, they got a middle school, and they've got one, two, three elementary schools. In addition to five traditional K-12 schools, the district also operates Anderson Community Education, the Anderson County Early Childhood Regional Training Center, the Ezra Sparrow Early Childhood Center, and the Trailblazer Early College and Career Academy. The board is composed of five elected board members, and as of December of 2020, they are James Sargent, the chair, Peggy Peach, the vice chair, Jason Collins, Rose Morgan, and Scott Brown, all board members. Indeed. And uh, got to think that they may have risen up through this uh, school system, you know, and now look at where they are now. They must be successful, as must be all of the graduates of this school system. Um, but that's all that we know. They've got a budget of $41 million. That's pretty good. What's How's that break out? 220 teachers to 35, 55 students. That's uh, how like, many students per teacher? Hmm. Great question. 20 to, it's like here. 17 to 1. 16 to 1. You going to do the math for us? Oh, yeah. It's 16 to 1. Good job there, Rob. 
Hey, and that's why you may have graduated from this school district. Um, they've got seven schools. That's pretty good. I mean, it doesn't, we don't have any exceptional information here, but it seems as though they're doing quite well. And I'm sure that all of their students are as well. Yeah. And some of them might even eventually build freight trains, such as... <laughs> Look at that for a segue. The four-axle diesel locomotive built by General Motors Electromotive Division. Power is provided by an EMD 645 F3B12 cylinder engine, which generates 200, 2,000, sorry, 2,800 horsepower. And the GP49 was marketed as one of four models in the 50 series introduced in 1979. This includes such famous engines as the GPSD49, the GPSD50. Now, both of these were relatively popular with a total of 278 GP50s built and 427 SD50s built. The SD49 was advertised but never built, and a total of nine were built somehow gp9 gp49 and that's what we're talking about here so we're talking about only nine now alaska railroads was the sole customer that ordered the gp49 in two orders the company first bought locomotives 2801 to 2804 in september 1983 locomotives 2805 to 2809 were subsequently built in May of 1985. We did have six GP39Xs built in November of 1980 for the Southern Railway and upgraded to GP49s shortly thereafter. Yeah, we could read more about how exciting it is, but this is about as exciting as it gets. I'd read the rest of the article, but really, hey, there were some of them, and then they sold some of them, and then they got used for other things, and yeah, they're they're train engines. If this is really your jam, go read the article. For everyone else, just know that some are used on commuter trains, some have been rebuilt, and some are now derated. Yeah, so Rob, who are you putting your vote down for in this round? Yeah, I think it's no surprise. I'm voting for Anderson County Schools in Kentucky. And I'm doing the opposite, going with the freight train, chug, chug, chugging along. And so we find ourselves on the tracks at an impasse here at... Time for a tiebreaker. Well, since we can't agree, one of us is wrong, and it's probably you, but we're going to let the universe decide through the fate of a random number. Absolutely. We're going to decide that random number by looking into our crystal balls, putting them on the tracks, letting a train run over them and flatten them, and then seeing what number the shards resemble. That is probably not what we will do. Instead, why don't we just pick a number between 1 and 10,000, and here's here's the thing. If we actually had to pick between children and old rusty engines, I can't believe you're not picking the, the future of the United States, at least the future of Kentucky. Instead, you're picking a train from Alaska. Yes, um, mostly just to be contradictory. Perfect. So I'm going to pick 3,555, which is the number of students in the Anderson County School District. Okay, okay, that is a good reason to do so. Um, I'm going to be bold here, and I'm going to go with the number 2,800, uh, which is the amount of horsepower that this train was rated at. 
Well, our randomly selected number from the power of Google is 4,739, making Anderson County Public Schools in Kentucky the winner. The ultimate tournament of everything. Well, EMDGP49, you kind of went off the tracks there and uh, couldn't pass the test to beat the school district. And so, uh, yeah, Anderson County Schools, you're moving on to the next round. Why don't we do the same? Moving on to round eight. I say, would you by chance have any round eight? Round eight! Oh, round eight is going to be a doozy. We're going to talk about Craig End Glasgow and the list of candidates in the 2008 United States presidential election. Oh, big heavy hitters. Craig End, a neighborhood in the Scottish city of Glasgow. Uh, we all know and love that place. Facing off against a list of individuals that we know and have a whole bunch of mixed feelings about, probably, uh, from the not-so-distant 2008 United States presidential election. So I cast my ballot to jump right into the mix of it. Now, Craig End is situated on the north of the River Clyde, immediately west of Garthamlock, east of Hagenfield Park and Rochesi, and separated from Cranhill and Queensley to the south by the M8 motorway. Now, an area of open ground is to the north, and the local landmarks are two water towers, which are beautifully illuminated at night. Ah, uh, yes. You want to really see that at, uh, you know, when you look up and the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie. That's a water tower. In the 1970s and 80s, Craig End was considered a high amenity area due to the large number of water towers. I'm sorry. Oh, it's back and front door houses compared to tenements in the neighboring areas of Ruchazi and Garthamlock. Uh, the building fabric of Craig End is now somewhat poorer than these areas, which, as they have been revigorated and rebuilt as part of the city's East End regeneration scheme. Craig End has three schools, Sunnyside and Avenue End, and St. Rose of Lima, which is a Roman Catholic school. Indeed. Um, we've got some pictures. We do see a photo of the, this looks like one of their lovely aforementioned water towers. It's big. It's bold. It's got horizontal stripes. Um, yeah, I'd want to see that at night. Make sure I knew where it was. I bet it's filled with water. And it's a good thing we know where it is. Now, I wonder if we know where everyone who ever ran for president in 2008 is. And I'm going to guess no, because the following is a list of candidates who were candidates who are not on any state ballots, withdrew from the race, suspended their campaign or failed to earn their party's nomination are listed separately. OK, so those people are gone, but there's still quite the list here. We have in no particular order. Barack Obama, John McCain, Ralph Nader, Bob Barr, Cynthia McKinney, Chuck Baldwin, Alan Keyes, Gloria LaRiva, Brian Moore, Roger Calero, Charles J., Thomas Stevens, and Gene Admonson. Yeah, wow. I kind of thought I would recognize more of those names. Yeah, yeah, apparently not. Let's see if some of these sites are still running. Let's see if BobBarr2008.com is up and running still. <laughs> it now, is one not. One name... <laughs> 
one name that you didn't include there was Ron Paul, uh, who was on the ballot in Louisiana with Barry Goldwater Jr. on the Louisiana Taxpayers Party ticket and in Montana with Michael Perotka on the Constitution Party of Montana ticket, even though the latter is associated with the National Constitution Party. Paul's supporters also qualified him to receive write-in votes in California. Paul was no longer actively running for president, however, when he attended ballot status and asked to be removed. His request was denied by the Montana Secretary of State because the request was sent to him too late. He didn't even want to be eligible. And yet, Ron Paul, there he was on the ballot. Sorry, buddy. Sorry, 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 buddy. Hey, what's up with your kid, by the way? Can we just talk about that for a second? Yeah. Ron Paul, if you're listening, like, what is the deal? Yeah, no one really knows. Um, he he asked to be removed from that as well, but it was likely too late. Um, so obviously the winner of this election was the aforementioned Barack Obama with his vice presidential um, individual, Joe Biden, uh, who some of you may know now as the current president of the United States. Um, everybody else was a loser, more or less. Yeah, and if you didn't know the Joe Biden part, perhaps you're in a small town in Oklahoma whose paper just decided to tell you <laughs> that, that – uh, Was that Oklahoma or was that California? <laughs> you have to go and check out one of our previous episodes. You don't got to go back too far. But I recommend that you do because we've got 48 episodes before this one and a whole bunch of scouting reports that you can check out to learn about a whole bunch of wonderful stuff and hear some funny things as well. Speaking of funny things, let's get back to American politics. Yeah, it'd be funnier if it wasn't so sad. So this list of candidates is a list of people that I have chosen to forget about, at least for most of my time. Uh, Remember Sarah Palin? Oh, gosh, Sarah Palin. Okay, uh, yeah, so there's a lot of parties. If you didn't know, in, in America here, we have two political parties that get a lot of press, but actually there are many more. We have the Independent Independence Ecology, Peace, and Freedom Party, the Libertarian Party, the Green Party, the Constitution Party, the Socialism and Liberation Party, the Socialist Party, the Socialist Workers Party, the Boston Tea Party, the Objectivist Party, and the Prohibition Party. And those are just the ones represented in the 2008 election. And if you want to see more parties in American politics, you need to vote for those people. Now, I didn't know that the Prohibition Party was even a party anymore, and it doesn't sound like much of a party at all, because it's a political party in the United States known for its historic oppression to the sale or consumption of alcoholic beverages as an integral part of the temperance movement. It is, however, the oldest existing third party in the United States. Yeah, and their logo is a camel. So if you want to see... kind of morphed. Yeah, Like, if you were really drunk and looking at a camel, this is what that camel would look like. However, you wouldn't be really drunk at all if you were a member of a prohibition party. No, you'd, you're you going to drive for the other two parties is what's going to happen. That's what you're going to do. You're going to be the DD, and then they won't vote for you for president. If your DD shows up with a camel... You might want to just call an Uber. Um, There were a number of other third-party candidates. We've got a whole list here of how the election went. Um, But long story short, Barack Obama was victorious. No one else was. Um, And politics continues. Um, We've got a lot of differing opinions here in this 
nation. But in the end, we've got to pick someone who's going to lead us. And uh, most of the people have picked in the last several elections the person that didn't actually win. So I don't know what to say about that. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Sorry. You can't you can't win them all. And that that's actually how democracy works. You literally cannot win them all. Eventually, you have to stop running. That's that's kind of how we do it here. So that being said, who's going to win it all here in this round? I'm going to go for the place with the two beautiful water towers. Oh, I love a good water tower. I can only see one. I'd love to go and see the other, especially when it's illuminated at night. Craig and Glasgow, you're moving on to the next round. The ultimate Sorry, guys. He got away from us there. We were having flashbacks. It's... uh. Anyway, we're let, let's let's flash forward here instead instead of back. It's about time for round nine. Round nine. In round nine, our final round, we're going to talk about Park Choe against Tropsilon Lactitarse. Mm. Music to my ears, just Ugh. as would come out of our first contestant, Park Choa, who is a South Korean singer, as well as our other contestant, who might, uh, you know, their song buzzes in your ears. It's a square-headed wasp in the family of Crab Brodenay. Let's see which one of these is going to sting us and uh, make us choose them to <laughs> the winner. <laughs> Spoiler alert, the wasp is going to lose, but we'll read about it anyway. So Park Choa, South Korean singer, best known as a former member of the girl group AOA, born March 6, 1990 in Incheon, South Korea. She wanted to major in music at university, but her conservative father said, no, you be in a girl group. No, he didn't say that. He wanted her to get a traditional job. So she enrolled in aviation business administration and worked as an IPTV salesperson where she secretly auditioned to be an idol, failing the audition 15 times. But not to be denied, her first step in becoming an idol was when she met singer-songwriter Junielle, who told her about FNC's auditions for the girl group AOA. Both Junielle and Choa were previously trainees at a company that went bankrupt. On July 30th of 2012, Choa made her debut as a member of AOA on Minette's M Countdown with the song Elvis from their debut single album, Angel's Story. Now, on June 12th, 2013, it was announced that Choa would play the female lead, Gabriella, in the musical High School Musical. Her agency, FNC Entertainment, revealed photos of her practicing the duet song Start of Something New, she said that she wanted to portray Gabriella as sincerely as she could, and the musical ran from July 2nd to September 1st at Seoul's Blue Square Samsung Card Hall. And it was all upward from there. On March 16th, 2014, she released a solo OST for TV Chosun's TV series Bride of the Century. She appeared as a new cast member on NBC's variety show My Little Television. She... <clears throat> she also became a new model for sports brand NBA's 2015 S-S. The first few pictures released were colorful and sporty, according to this article. On March 25th, 2015, it was revealed that she'd be one of the members 
on the studio panel for MBC's We Got Married, replacing Hong Jin Young. On June 6th of that same year, she became an advertising model for Alba Heaven, a website to help people find part-time jobs. She appeared alongside Yu Bang Jae in a commercial for the website that month. In July, 20, in July, also that same year, it was revealed that she would collaborate with Primary and Iron for Primary's new single, 2-3's song, Don't Be Shy. The song and full music video were released July 24th, 2015. Now, a, tr- a teaser trailer for Choa's solo debut, Flame, was released on December 14th of 2015. Flame is a cover of a song by Jang Hee Jin featuring Gary, with Gary's rap reworked into a section for Choa to sing. The song was later released on December 17th of that 2015 year. Big year for her. Yeah, now it wasn't all sunshine and advertising. On June 22nd of 2017, she announced that she'd be leaving AOA due to depression and insomnia. She stated that she'd tried using medication to help. However, there was no improvement in her mental health. This followed after she had a hiatus from the group following their activities in January of 2017 when they released their first studio album, Angels Knock. Her departure from AOA was officially confirmed by FNC Entertainment on June 30th, 2017, and in May... Of 2019, her contract expired and was not renewed. But she was not to be not heard from again. After a three-year hiatus from the entertainment industry, it was announced on August 6th of 2020 that Choa had recorded a new song for the soundtrack of KBS2 drama Men Are Men. Officials confirmed her participation after viewers heard the song on August 3rd broadcast of the show and speculated that the singer sounded similar to Choa. According to an entertainment industry official on August 21st of 2020, Choa has moved to Great M Entertainment, a new industry uh, agency founded by Kim Young-soon, who was a founding member and managing director of FNC Entertainment. I don't know, reading this article, whether her dad was right or she is living out her dream. I'm not quite sure because it sounds like she's not being all that successful and it's not really working out for her. But I don't know. Sounds like she didn't want to have a traditional job and sounds like she didn't. And also sounds like she's had more success than many individuals who have attempted to do what she has done. Speaking of... uh, having a lot of success let's talk about that very successful evolution of the wasp that is tripoxlalinolactitarsi yeah that one now this of course <laughs> the square-headed wasp found in central america north america and south america these are fairly common and harmless sounds like this was written by a wasp black wasps (laughs) that build muddy elongate nests on the external walls of houses and low-story apartments their characteristic nests resemble pan flutes in shape and are provisioned with spiders captured and paralyzed by the mother wasp okay it lays an egg which in each elongate nest cell amongst the invalid spiders from which a larva will hatch and slowly consume all the spiders' food. Okay. The species apparently undergo four larval molts until completing their development as pupa inside a black cocoon. So, okay, we have... No. <laughs> hang on. No. Hang on. Hang on. We have, we, have, we have a wasp, square-headed wasp, which apparently doesn't sting, 
uh, well, okay, hang on. It says comet, fairly harmless. So harmless means it can't kill you, but I bet it's a jerk. <laughs> so it not only it it kills spiders. So it it this wasp goes out and finds dead spiders and then sticks them in mud to the side of your home and then stings you if you're around it. This sounds awful. It looks like a pan flute. I mean, what if some kid picks this up off the side of the street thinking, oh, look, an instrument with which I'll be able to make beautiful music. And all you find in there is mud spiders and wasp larvae. <laughs> that's like, that is, that's not music. That no, is... That's that. That would never have made it onto the <laughs> Korean charts. You are you're gonna. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have nightmares about this wasp. That's that's what we get for making this the last entry. This is literally one of the worst and most horrible. And nature's amazing, isn't it? Golly, yeah. Just when you think, oh, that can't get worse. Well, <laughs> here's a wasp that collects dead spiders and sticks them to the side of your house in a flute, and then. <laughs> Lace their babies in it. It's, okay, okay, okay. Let's let's pause here. Let's stop talking about the horribleness that is this square-headed wasp, and let's talk instead about the tournament of everything. We've given one plug already. This is a show that we try to put out weekly where we talk about 18 of the random things using a random link generator off Wikipedia. The universe really decides what we're going to talk about week to week, and if you want to hear more of them... We need you to rate, like, share with your friends, leave a review, something to motivate us to do this more often because we usually do it once a week, but every once in a while we get a contestant like this and I go, I don't want to read any more Wikipedia today. (laughs) What if the next wasp lives in my car? Well, I think that would be good. It would get you out of your car, get you back into the studio so we could record more of these. You know what? We would really appreciate it if you'd like, rate, comment, and subscribe. But if you don't want to, that's also fine. Uh, Just feel grateful that none of us are living amongst these terrible pan flute deriving moths. Almost said moths because we so frequently have moths. If you listen to this uh, podcast a little bit more, which we hope you do, you'll find that to be true. Oh, boy. I am shook. Yeah, well, I'm not that shook. Park chose the winner. <laughs> no. no. I disagree. What? Come I on. disagree. No, 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 no. You're wrong, though. We're talking about existence. We're talking about the everything. There's, look, you know what? There's a lot of pop singers in the world. This freaking terrifying wasp. Come on. It's going to be. It's going to be problematic in the next round. Well, okay. It will be problematic because it will collect the bodies of its foes and stick them to the side of a house in a flute. Yeah, it'll do that. Yeah. You know what? Hit the button. Hit the button. The button? The ultimate tournament of everything. Not that one. We're having a tiebreaker, buddy. No, 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 no. Come on. We're not, we're not doing a tiebreaker. I want to I wanna see this wasp again, uh, but out, not outside of my house. In oh, a flute. Okay. You know what? I'll give it to you. That's fine. We can move the wasp on. That's okay. It can win. All right. That's fine. I Let's just... go. Tripoxalon Lactitarse. You're moving on begrudgingly to the next round of... Well, if you want to see if this wasp shows back up or see if a moth shows up or to see if anything really you care about shows up, we can see you next time. The ultimate tournament of everything.
We love you guys.